Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sumer Sports Show. I'm Eric Eager. It's Friday, July 28th. Um, I am just got done finishing uh, teaching a class on Moneyball uh, to some students at Wharton. Uh, Tej and Parker uh, are also uh, out today. So we're going to give you another rebroadcast. The last one with Adam Bonahar did really well. Um, this one, we're going to talk to another former NFL staffer, John Taylor. I mean, I actually saw John last night. He's one of the, the really good people in sports analytics. He also gives a ton of great insight on this podcast with Tej Seth uh, from his time with the Atlanta Falcons, working with Thomas Dimitrov, uh, overseeing, you know, overseeing analytics for a team that, that made a Super Bowl and, and, and won a couple uh, division titles. So uh, this is a great episode. Um, just a, a, a few things that were sponsored by uh, Circus Sports uh, and uh, Circus Sports is running their uh, yearly millions competition. They're running their yearly survivor competition. This is a great place uh, to go. Uh, if you want a little action on the NFL season, uh, visit circusports.com for uh, all your needs there. We will be out there at the end of uh, August for week zero of college football season. Uh, to do this podcast uh, with Circa at their great uh, hotel and sports book. So that should be a lot of fun. Also, follow us again, uh, sumersports.com. We are now on Sumer Sports on TikTok. We're going to put some videos out there. That should be a lot of fun. And and please come to our website, sumersports.com, for division previews. We're going to have the NFC West uh, this, this coming Monday. Uh, we're going to have one every single week until the season starts. Great articles this week, one on yards per route run by Tej as well. We're going to have some uh, new content from Sean Syed this week as well. So uh, we really, uh, we, we, the, things are things are moving really fast in the NFL, and, and we're really excited that you're with us. So now for Tate Seth and John Tiramina. Welcome to the Sumer Sports Show. I am your host today, Tate Seth. Parker Fleming, usually my co-host on these Wednesday afternoon shows, is on a very well-deserved vacation. So just me today. Uh, very excited with what guest we have here today. We have John Taramina. John, how are you today? I'm doing great, Tate. How are you? Good. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, you know, you're you're one of my closest friends in in all of football analytics and someone who I have a ton of respect for and, and a lot of people have a ton of respect for. So, you know, very excited to talk about your career with kind of how college went for you, how you got into the NFL, working for the Falcons for as many years as you did, and then some other general football topics because like I said earlier, you you really are like one of the best football minds I, I talk to 
uh, on, on a re- literally a daily basis. So very excited for that. So for everyone who isn't as familiar with you, you know, you, you started at, at uh, Penn State doing broadcast journalism, and then you got your master's in, in analytics at Villanova before working for the Atlanta Falcons at, in their analytics department for seven years and now are the director of football strategy at True Media. Yes, sir. And I will say you are also one of my favorite people to talk ball with. So it's going to be a pleasure today talking through everything. And yeah, I mean, that's my background and I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but um, it's a pleasure to kind of talk to everybody today. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for saying that. And I, I mean, I, I love hearing about this and, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, for, for everyone listening, like, can you just tell us like your background of like what it was like to fall in love with football when you felt like that really happened for you and then like the whole football analytics side of things and, and when that happened for you as well. For sure. So I grew up outside Philadelphia. Um, my family's had like Eagle season tickets since like the sixties. So when I was born, I was basically, you're going to be a Phillies sports fan and specifically an Eagles fan. Um, so at like five, I wanted to be the Eagles GM. I'm like, this is cool. I love these games. Um, they've always been like relatively good throughout my lifetime. And I mean, obviously at that point we were still in like the Ray Rhodes era. So it was a little bit of a crossroads, but was a fan kind of at the start of the Andy Reid era and just really enjoyed that. I didn't play growing up, um, but fell in love with kind of watching Philly sports. I love numbers. Um, I never really thought that like at that point in time, that was like, Oh, I could work for a sports team doing numbers because it was like scouting and coaching kind of where, the two things, how he kind of had made his hay in the cap world. So that was interesting to me, but I had no real concept of that being a reality. Um, and yeah, so just kind of was a hope that as I grew up, like end time would pass that maybe like something like sports analytics would actually become a thing. And sure enough, it did. So that was an opportunity that I wanted to seize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's, that's really cool. I, I think like a lot of, for a lot of us, it starts off by being like a passionate fan of a team um, and, and, you know, there, there, I don't know if there are more passionate fans in, in uh, the NFL than Eagles fans. So it's cool to see your, your passion from being an Eagles fans kind of, um, you know, carry you the rest of the way into, into working for football. So, yeah, why don't you take everyone through, like, kind of how you went from your, your master's of, of analytics at, at Villanova to eventually working for the Atlanta Falcons for, for as long as you did? For sure. So kind of when I was in undergrad, I'd heard of sports analytics. I knew it was a thing. Didn't necessarily know that you could get like a degree in anything like that. Um, So I was looking for a grad program while I was an undergrad that would be like remote in nature where I knew like in the sports world, like obviously I wanted to work for the Eagles. But at the end of the day, when you face the reality, you're just happy and blessed to work wherever a sports team would be willing to hire you. And I didn't want to be uh, waiting until I was finished with my grad school to entertain an internship or something like that. Um, so started my master's program at Villanova. And like I said, it was online and just started applying on anything I saw on teamwork online pretty much. Um, so Sixers were the first local opportunity that I saw. I applied there, applied for the Charlotte Hornets job that I saw next, which, you know, stepping a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'm like, all right, that would be a, a good move. And then saw the first football opportunity that actually was posted was the Falcons one. And I kind of just jumped on it. I had started like a insurance job as a database administrator. And so I was liking that. I was actually making money. I felt like I had real resume experience, which as anyone knows, kind of breaking into any industry when you're in college and you have like academic experience, that's much different than having something you can put on a resume where, Hey, I did this for this job. Um, So applied for the Falcons job. 
got really lucky, honestly. That database administrator job I mentioned I had, it was all SQL based. So I had like six weeks of SQL experience when I eventually accepted the Falcons job. And the Masters of Analytics, that's nice on paper of saying like, okay, this guy is generally qualified to do that kind of thing. But like people that I guess think that everything that's done from a coding perspective, from a data scientist uh, world in an NFL building or most sports teams building, only being in a language like R or Python, it's like not the whole story. Like a lot of things can be done exclusively in those languages, but at the end of like central data warehouse is going to live in a SQL database. So having those skills bridge some gaps that I could help out in other areas with the Falcons. And so I was lucky enough for them to offer me an internship in the 2015 season. For sure. And it, it's funny how sometimes those uh, different journeys can kind of lead us there. Like you getting that, that SQL experience in a job outside of sports instead of initially jumping into it, like might have definitely really helped uh, you in, in your job with, with the Falcons. And so, yeah, when you, when you started there and, and, and that season that, you were a part of the team and then you kind of worked your way up and, and ended up wearing like a, a ton of different hats uh, in Atlanta and, and we're doing a lot of things. How was it to kind of be like one of the, the early uh, people in the, the analytics department and, and kind of creating the department as it, as it grew along? I mean, it was, it was a dream fun experience because it was one of those things where obviously anyone's going to be happy to be a part of any organization, but when we came in, it was just a truly blank slate. So there's a lot of one patience because there wasn't necessarily expectations we were being held to. And two, just, you could be creative and just like start to work with, all right, what do you guys think's interesting? Kind of go to the drawing board. Um, as the CEO of Sumer Sports, Thomas Dimitrov, he was my GM there. So he was very inviting of like, Hey, let's get creative. Dan Quinn, the head coach as well. They, I mean, I was very blessed. I would say, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to grow the department the way we did without them kind of embracing it from the get go of this is new, but it's not going to be something that's an adversarial relationship at all. Like ultimately we want to build a winning organization. So this is now going to be a part of that. And they were invested in kind of spending time with teaching me things that maybe I didn't know from not playing and introducing me to their staff of like, Hey, this is JT and the coaches would know, here are the ways that we're kind of wanting you to work with him. And then the scouts would also know, and then they'd just come visit you. Right. And you start to form those relationships. And so, yeah, it was really cool, honestly, just being a part of the team, like at the end of the day, like it's just a dream that anybody would have, like, Oh, I'm a part of the organization. And then as you build those relationships, you start to show value and then eventually you need more people. Right. So we showed like, all right, this is the proof of concept of here's ways that we can save coaches time and provide the same types of insights that they're trying to spend hours to find, maybe automated on Mondays or eliminating efficiencies in the draft and working with captain contracts people on kind of helping with contract negotiations. And so as all of those areas are starting to take an interest in a department of one at that point in time, it, we were kind of forced to grow throughout the years. And then also looking around the league, like every GM wants to make sure, or the GMs that care anyway, like Thomas, want to make sure that like, if that's an area they care about, like they want to be a leader in that area. So it's, it was important kind of like seeing other, like maybe organizations that had a head start, that if there's some ways that we can make ourselves a part of that crowd of winning organizations. Mm -hmm. For sure. And and yeah, I think that's like the the key 
type of things is is like the crossover between uh, the analytics people and the non-analytics people. And that's that's been a common theme of some of the guests that we've talked to on the show throughout the summer, like Sean Syed and, and Cody Alexander and and others is how can these these teams really invite the analytics people into kind of what they were so used to already doing with with how they do scouting and how they do the draft and how they game plan. And like once they realize that it's pretty advantageous to have an analytics staff of, you know, at least a couple people that can help you do all that stuff. It can really save you time and give you just advantages across the board in so many different areas. And something that I think is so interesting that you did was you had to be specialized in, in so many aspects of football in college to pro scouting in pro evaluation in cap and contract. What was it like to kind of pick up on all, all of those things while you were in Atlanta? I mean, ultimately when, when you're just like pay like make an active commitment to listening to these people and going through maybe one whole cycle, like no one, I mean, everyone has great ideas, but no one can really have a, a very impactful idea without at least like being a sponge for a year and seeing like, all right, teams win Super Bowls every single year. There's a champion. So there's these winning processes that existed since the beginning of time. And then the areas kind of present themselves as you pay attention, like, Oh, well, at the end of the day, when you would introduce analytics into an organization, the processes kind of stay the same, if you will. It's like the insight that comes out of those processes is either better or faster, if you will. Um, so you don't want to negotiate differently fundamentally, but you want to have better information when you're negotiating. You're like, oh, well, maybe if we provide them with better metrics that maybe the agents don't have access to that internally we believe in, that's an area that we can provide value there. And in the draft, you guys have all this information that data providers are providing you with. We can kind of hack through all of that. You guys are basically already telling us you're already dealing with too much information. Well, what if I told you these concepts could eliminate you having to be very wide in the amount of information that you're trying to consume to make these decisions. It's consuming the information in similar ways, like a neural network, for example, Mm -hmm. of like talking about, or the, a decision tree or something that you can explain, like, this is the process that you're following for the draft. It's going to do very similar things. Just like any draft has its busts. It has its people that were picked in the fifth round that nobody necessarily thought were going to be successful a model is never going to be perfect either, but you're kind of both trying to arrive at the same point of here's very parallel processes. Here's the one that you guys have always been doing, whether it's scouting or coaching. And then here's other things that analytics can kind of add to that process. For sure. And yeah, I I really like thinking about it from like a decision tree standpoint of what are, what are kind of the different tweaks and, and different paths you can go down to get to this, this optimal outcome that that everyone in the organization wants to get to at the end of the day which is which is winning and i, I think that's really cool that that you put it uh in, in that type like, of analogy they, they bought into that type of stuff too like at positions where there's not one mold right like a corner or a receiver there's slot guys mm-hmm. and there's outside guys those are two very different molds quote unquote that you're looking for that's what those things are meant to do so just like the fact that it fit with, yes, we are looking at different traits for different types of these positions. You can kind of model for those things. Yeah, for sure. I like that a lot. And yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And yeah, before we get into, uh, to talking some, some actual, you know, ball here, I just got to ask one thing, like, did it, did you ever, did it ever hit you? Like when you were in the facility, 
you're like you're like wow i'm standing next to julio jones right now or like you know i'm, I'm sitting in the same room as matt ryan does that did that ever like get old on you or was it always kind of like you know just just super excited to to be there all the time i mean it never got old in the sense that you're just always excited to be there one mm-hmm. they're always just fun people to be around like they're always going to be team-minded people so they make the atmosphere good I mean, it was one of the most unique work environments you could have. Um, I've heard Adam mention it on a prior episode with his time with the Cowboys. Like you bump into players at lunch and like they're just normal guys. So it's awesome. You're like you look because I'm, I mean, I'm by no means tall. So I'd look up to some of these guys and be like, oh, my gosh, you're Julio or you're Matt Ryan. And like they'll just like ask you, well, what did you order? Or, like something random or like a linebacker will comment on like, oh, that grilled cheese looks good. Or, and it's just like they're normal people. Right. So you mm-hmm. get to like interact with them and then eventually it became where they weren't like not like special if you will but you felt more comfortable like embracing the fact that you shouldn't feel awkward like kind of sharing a lunchroom with those guys you are all part of the team and like I said the two leaders Dan Quinn and uh, Thomas instilled that culture in those guys so I would say in most building that's that's the case and these guys are going to be friendly with you but it was still always cool when you just like run into them like four feet away you're like that's something that i would have killed for as a fan growing up mm-hmm. and it's it's different than being a fan that's why i say like it does get a little bit different where you start to feel like we called it under dq like the brotherhood where like you're all part of one thing and like we have our roles right they're the ones who are playing the game on sundays but we treat each other with respect and so that was like honestly cool um and as i mentioned like everyone's team-minded so it's like if you are going to be successful at that level, I feel like that's a prerequisite like that. The people that are selfish root themselves out and don't necessarily Mm -hmm. make it to that level. So it's like no coincidence, right? Like that, that feels like a special atmosphere because there's just, it's filled with special people in my opinion. So Mm -hmm. it was just really cool to, I mean, I talk about Dan Quinn. He's one of the best like human mentors I've ever had as like forget like football just being like a guy i mean thomas as well but like those are the types of things that you spend enough time with those people in that building every day and you do form relationships beyond football with them which is pretty cool for sure yeah no that's really cool and like when we when we talk about so yeah let's talk about the the 2016 falcons um which is like truly like a masterpiece that that thomas a you know co-host of this show on on mondays with with eric helped put the team together along with Kyle Shanahan as offensive coordinator, Dan Quinn as defensive coordinator, like you mentioned, and and just like talent, like all across the board uh, on the coaching staff and on the players. So 2016 Falcons, third best offense using EPA per play from 2014. Personally, my favorite offense that I've ever watched in, in any, uh, you know, college or NFL. Chip Kelly's Oregon offenses are up there, but 2016 Falcons offense was amazing. And then like when you just look between the 20s, which – which we're big proponents on, and, and we can talk about that later. They were the best offense uh, in, in using the EPA per play because of that. And you have Matt Ryan, MVP season. Um, overall, he had the seventh best EPA per play of any quarterback season since 2014. And, like, the really impressive thing about it is in 2015, Matt Ryan was 11th in EPA per play. He went to first in 2016 and then to seventh in 2017. So, like, very good quarterback across his whole career. But you could see this 2016 season was really special to, to a lot of people uh, in this in this organization. So when was the moment for you when you realized that this team, like, really had the chance to be special? I mean, so I would say that offseason, to be honest with you. So the first year, everyone kind of talked about Kyle's offense. It's the greatest system that kind of exists currently, if you will, or, like, it's up there. 
that it's hard for a quarterback to learn that and master it in one year. So there was like tempered expectations for the 2015 offense that, hey, Matt can play at an MVP caliber level in this offense and then ended up doing so. But it's going to take, take some time for him to learn, all right, not only are these good plays, but here's kind of how it accentuates his strengths and Kyle learning Matt as well. Um, so that offseason, just the free agency period felt great. We felt like we filled some gaps that maybe couldn't be filled all in one year of rebuilding a team. Um, we had, we think we claimed Taylor Gabriel at the cutdown, and that was someone that Kyle was very big on. He had spent his time in Cleveland with him, I think, for a season. So he had known, like, that's a guy that I could utilize in a very specific way. And then just watching that offense, I'm like, okay, this is what they've been telling us, that, like, just wait for year two. And obviously, like you mentioned, Matt wins MVP. Kyle calls one of the most historic offenses of all time. Um, and yeah, accentuated, in my opinion, my favorite receiver to ever watch play. Um, I know you have your thoughts on Megatron, but um, <laughs> those two, I mean, those two alone. But when he's mm -hmm. not, Julio was great to watch and he set records that year from an efficiency standpoint. And as you mentioned, like just seeing we were always like watching from the press box, like the minute the possession started, you'd blink and we'd already be in the red zone. And that was one thing that we always talked about. Kyle wasn't necessarily like the most efficient red zone play caller, but we were always down there. So if you're down there 10 times a game, you're going to be putting up 35 kind of without really blinking. So it was just a great experience. And then I know like people that were Falcons fans of that season, like we were very much like the cardiac kids where there was games where we would almost blow a lead. Obviously we had the Super Bowl that we experienced, but during the first half of the year, the defense wasn't necessarily like a well, well-oiled machine. Um, it had its holes, right? The offense was humming the whole time. And at the bye week, um, I believe actually DQ took over play calling going forward and the defense, it changed. If you look at, I didn't do, I should have pulled it before this, but um, if you would look at like points per game splits for pre bye week and post bye week in terms of allowed, I want to say we probably cut it by about 10 points per game. And that was like just somewhat accentuating some things that we had talked about. Like this was probably the coolest part was I think if you would also look, we played a little bit more man coverage in the second half of that season. And analytically, if you look, we were very successful when we played man coverage in the first half of the year. But in mm -hmm. that Seattle defense, you don't necessarily like that's not your bread and butter. It's mm -hmm. that cover three. So that was more like your change of pace. But being closer to like a more like even split ended up kind of being the recipe for that defense to cook going into the playoffs. And that was probably at that point where like we got a chance to take this thing to the finish line. So it was mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I mean, you can you can really see the difference with the defense when you just look at like the 2016 Falcons schedule. The, the first uh, 10 weeks of the season pre-buy, <laughs> there was only one game where the opposing team scored less than 20 points. And then after the bye, uh, the, the, the seven or the yeah, the six games that happened after that, only two games where the, the opponent scored over 20 points. So the defense really clamped down the, the second half of the season. And I think it really all like came to a, an inflection point in, in that game against the Packers where the, the Packers come in and, you know, it's, it's like as someone watching as, as a Lions fan, like I was rooting for the Falcons cause I didn't want the Packers to go to the Super Bowl. But like, I, I want, I do remember being nervous going into that game and there was something just like really special about the way 
that you guys came out in that game where you could tell based on the first like two possessions that the Falcons were going to be headed to the Super Bowl based on how the offense went down the field on those first two drives and then how the defense dialed up these pressure packages on Rodgers and and really forced him to uh to not like go through his typical process so what was, what was it like to prepare for like a really deep playoff run and especially that Packers game I mean, the Packers game, I almost remember, I don't, don't want to be wrong on this, but I do feel like this was the tendency that man pressure was what Rodgers struggled against that year. And that's something that you got to be bold to go in with a game plan against number 12 with that being, all right, we're going to man up and send pressure and not let him beat you. But that's kind of what he struggled against, that his guys weren't necessarily breaking open. We weren't afraid to kind of throw the house at him, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we knew like our offense could be dominant right out the gate. So let's try and put them away in the first quarter and just kind of set the tempo. And we were confident we had that run going into the postseason. And yeah, I feel like that postseason was a blur almost getting to the Super Bowl that like it felt very, very just we were playing our best ball in those games. And that's what you want. Right. And that's ultimately how teams end up getting to the Super Bowl. And then even through the first half of that game, we were, I mean, doing something very similar to the Patriots. So it was definitely (laughs) a dream to be a part of a run like that for sure yeah and i mean it's just yeah it's it's, it's really cool like seeing like a, a roster come together like like the falcons did that year where you have matt ryan like we mentioned has, has always been a, a good quarterback um but like in that in that kyle shanahan offense like really took it to the next level julio jones had the highest yards per route run of, of any receiver um, in, in any season that we have that data for, which is really impressive. But then, like you mentioned, like Taylor Gabriel, like was third in receiving yards for the Falcons that year. Muhammad Sanu was second. And then on, on the other side of things like Devontae Freeman was was really good, especially in that that Packers game that we were just talking about. And, and we had the great one-two punch with him and Tevin Coleman. Mm-hmm. And that was another thing that using those guys in the passing game was something Kyle was very good at doing that. We had just that nice collection of weapons that it was a perfect kind of recipe to let him cook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, like Kyle Shannon was, was obviously amazing play calling wise and, and ended up getting the, the 49ers job. And, but like the, the rest of the staff, I think was really impressive. Like, how did you feel about working, working with the staff? I know you wanted to, to touch on some of the names here. Yeah. I was going to say, I tweeted this the other day that it's like the greatest staff of all time, mm-hmm. but I mean, on both sides, like give credit to Thomas as well. Cause he put together, I'll talk about them first. Like the scouting staff that we had that year, our assistant GM was Scott Pioli and that he's a former GM. We had two other former GMs, Rustin Webster and Phil Emery as a part of that scouting staff. So, I mean, I'd say make no mistake, like we had the the right guys putting eyes on assembling the talent for that roster. Um, One of our lead kind of college scouts at the time, I believe he was a national scouter, maybe director of college scouting for that season. Um, Anthony Robinson is now assistant GM of the Titans. So that was someone who kind of was from that original staff. And so, yeah, a lot of scouting kind of prowess in that staff. And then when you talk about the coaching staff, I mean, some people probably have heard of these names, but I don't know that everyone's aware that they were all on the staff together. So I kind of had it written down. So we've got DQ as the head coach, and he's now defensive coordinator of the Cowboys. We've got Raheem Morris was the wide receivers coach, actually, at that point, and assistant to the head coach. And he flipped over, I want to say it was in 18, to the def- defensive side of the ball, and now is defensive coordinator of the Rams. Um, the linebackers coach that year was Jeff Ulbrich. He's now defensive coordinator of the Jets, which that's kind of like, Salah wanted somebody to kind of call that Kyle defense or the the Kyle defense that was inherited and changed from DQ, if you will. That's kind of the the tree. 
Um, and send then flipping over to the offensive side of the ball. We talk about Kyle. He was the OC. He's a head coach. We've got the two offensive assistants, the Mikes, we called them. We had Mike yeah. McDaniel and Mike LaFleur were the two offensive assistants. So McDaniel, head coach of the Dolphins. LaFleur, offensive coordinator, used to be with the Rams and now – or sorry, used to be with the Jets and now with the Rams – um, and then just a shout out to one of my buddies, offensive line intern, Justin Outen that season um, has now worked his way up. Uh, he was the OC in Denver last year and is now the run game coordinator in Tennessee. So, I mean, I'd say some of that has to do with like teams wanting people that one are great people two are great minds and three can bring that system with them places. Mm -hmm. But there, there's some people that are successful at doing that. There's others that aren't. So, I mean, when all in all, I mean, we've got three current head coaches from that staff, three current defensive coordinators from that staff, and then like one and a half on offensive coordinators, if you will. So just a very impressive coaching tree that was a part of that 2016 year. Yeah, I mean, when you lay it out like that, like it, it really is crazy how many people were on that staff that are like still coaching in the league. We know like how hard it is to sustain being a coach for so many years and Kyle Shannon has had a ton of success with the 49ers making it to multiple NFC championship games Matt LaFleur as well has has had a lot of success as head coach and even Mike McDaniel in, in his one year as, as head coach of the Dolphins has already shown that he's one of the better offensive minds in the league and like it's really cool to see that it, it all like stems from this 2016 Falcons team that was already just so high powered on on offense but like that makes it even cooler when you find that out. Did I, I think I skipped Matt. I might have when I mentioned he was quarterback's coach that year. But yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Any, yeah. I mean, it yeah. was impressive. And really, like, I mean, credit to them because it's not an easy system to kind of master and bring with mm -hmm. you other places that they really have been. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky to study it, but then they've earned those opportunities, I'd say, to be successful in these other spots. Yeah, for sure. And, and something that Cody Alexander talked about a couple of weeks ago when he was on was like the heavy quarters defense take usually takes like two years to learn. And so defenses that played a lot of quarters last year that it didn't work well for them, like the Browns or the Packers, you should expect some positive uh, regression with them this year because of that. And I think that like the Shanahan system is, is kind of similar in a way where like Matt LaFleur's first year with the Packers, like the, their, their record was really good, 13 and three in, in 2019. But like, their offense actually wasn't that good. And it took until the second year with yeah. where Rodgers ended up winning MVP and, and was able to do that back to back. And, you know, Shanahan had some quarterback issues early on with the, the 49ers, but 
eventually got the ball rolling over there. And, and like that's that, I guess that's, that makes it even more impressive what, what Mike McDaniel was able to do with the dolphins last year, where they were able to have such a, such an efficient offense in his first year as head coach. No doubt. And then also just like being adaptable too, because if you look mm-hmm. at the three defensive guys from that staff, they are calling some more quarters in their own places yeah. now. And that was not a staple of the Atlanta defense that we were running. So studying things like what Cody brings up and acknowledging if this is something that's going to work in today's NFL, like we would be foolish to not incorporate into our playbooks. I believe the Jets under Ulbrich probably call one of the most quarter heavy defenses mm-hmm. in the league if i were guessing so yeah no they do have the highest rate of quarters in the league and and that yeah like that's that's very impressive job by Ulbrich and like M- morris and quinn have like really gained a lot of respect in i think a lot of people's eyes because they are now calling defenses that aren't necessarily like their backgrounds and they, they were able to adapt like morris was given like brandon staley's defense that was like super heavy uh, too high after being like a mostly single high guy and was able to adapt and help the Rams win a Super Bowl. And then Dan Quinn as well with the, the Cowboys defense where he's doing a lot of things that you wouldn't expect from the typical Dan Quinn. Like when you think about the 2013 Seahawks and, and that forward and like the, the 2015 Falcons and forward, like what you would expect from him, he's calling simulated pressures at the highest rate in the league. And he's, he's running a lot more quarters and cover two, like you mentioned, and really just changing up his defense. So yeah, the, the adaptability there is definitely key between these coaches, I think. No doubt. Yeah. So let, yes, yeah, so now that we've, we've, yeah, we talked about, talked about the, the Falcons and, yeah, your experience there and, and kind of like what you were able to do to make them very, very pretty ana- analytically focused. And you definitely saw that in a lot of the team building and game planning things that they're doing. Are, are there other staffs around the league that really stand out to you right now uh, that, that you think are, are listening to the analytics staff more than most? Yeah, I mean, shout out to you. I think you tweeted about it. The NFC East is kind of <laughs> making this like a race of their own this mm-hmm. uh, offseason and kind of just lately. I mean, most people know like Philly has been a, a organization that from, I mean, for 20 years probably have had from the top down, just an investment in like, that's something they wanted to push. They've always had say one of the bigger staffs in the league. A few years ago, the giants really made a commitment to making that a part of the organization. I'd say, so those two kind of had the biggest head start in that division. But if you look at kind of Seth Walter and the people out there on Twitter, the Cowboys and commanders both hired several people this off season. Um, and are also committing in that area. The new ownership for the commanders kind of shift things that they're probably going to be more invested in that area. So in that division, I'd say far and away is the most complete in terms of like being progressive analytically. Um, Baltimore and Cleveland, obviously, I'd be remiss to not mention them. They're franchises that have always had larger staffs and buy in from kind of the top down. And so those would be the ones I'd say that people talked about the most being Philly, Baltimore and Cleveland, I think, throughout the years. Um, I'm biased. I think in Atlanta, they have a pretty good setup. I mean, between because I would say your analytics setup or the impact is only as good as how relatable it is to the operation, like from whether it's coaching or scouting and like the way that we were able to organically grow something that is truly impactful. I would say they're definitely above average top 10, top five, if I'm going to be biased. Um, And then like three others that I'll throw out there that I think get some love, maybe some misunderstanding. Um, but I think that from my opinion, they're definitely moving in the right direction would be Minnesota, Buffalo, mm-hmm. and Jacksonville are kind of the three that I think like Jacksonville, I'll start there just with Doug Peterson. Obviously he has his Philly roots and I think ownership wise, they've also got it, got their roots in being invested in analytics. So 
I'd say that there's probably more being done there than is talked about, if you would. I mean, Buffalo just feels like they're always doing smart things, right? And I know they have smart people up there. So mm -hmm. I would not be shocked if they're, they've got a pretty good thing going. And then Minnesota hiring Kwesi and then kind of just the investment that they've put forth in making decisions more analytically based. I mean, we've seen some of them this offseason. Um, shout out to my girl, Emily Vadis, that's up there as well. So she came from the analytics space and is now in the cap and contracts world for them. Mm -hmm. So putting people from very traditional analytics roles in less traditional analytics roles is something that I think winning progressive analytics organizations will start doing. So those would be some of the th ones I would say for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you, you truly are like one of the most connected people in the, the NFL uh, analytics space on, on the team side. So when you, when you mentioned like teams that are, that are using analytics, like I'll, I'll always listen to, to that. And yeah, I mean the NFC East arms race, I think is like kind of the craziest thing of this, offseason right now from from an analytics perspective because you have all the success that the Eagles had last year with their analytics staff which is which is pretty big in number and you can see their effect both in team building what they're able to do with contracts uh, the types of players that they draft and how they draft them but also like the game planning like you can see that the Jalen Hurts push play for example is yeah. something that they they like leaned into throughout the season because they knew how high of a success rate it would be for them and like the Cowboys, Jerry Jones, they definitely seem to have taken notice of that and are building their staff, hiring three people this offseason. And then everything else you mentioned, the commanders, new ownership, we could see more buy-in there. And, and obviously the, the job that Ty Syme is doing with the, the Giants as well is, is going to make that division really interesting. And it, it already is like the best division in the NFC uh, just on paper from like a roster perspective, but now you have all these all these analytics people making their way there too, which makes it which should make the game planning pretty interesting this year. No doubt, and I mean some of the best fan bases in the league, so they're all for it too, mm -hmm. as I know, kind of sitting in Philly again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So yeah, talking about game planning now, like yeah, like we mentioned earlier, like when when you work at, as an analytics staffer in the league you have to do so many things like and, and learn so many things between contracts and team building and game planning. And so when you look at game planning specifically, what, were, what are some of the edges that you think that teams can use right now to put themselves ahead of the ball? If, if, uh, if like personnel was, was pretty even across the league, what are, what are some things that they can do from a game planning perspective to give them an advantage? I mean, either make it harder for your opponent to know what you're doing or make it easier for your opponent to make a mistake. So just those are the two fundamental ways that like you win a play, right? Every coach talks about, did we win or lose that play? Um, so the, the former in terms of making it harder for them to know what you're going to do, we, we've talked about it before, but being like more diverse in your play calling in terms of, all right, if you are only a, a basic two coverages that you're going to call in a game, well, then the offense also knows that, that that's really the only two things that they have to game plan for. So, that, I mean, flip a coin at best, they're going to be right 50% of the time, but that's the bar they're working from. So introducing a third or a fourth coverage makes a defense harder to figure out. And then the flip of that on the offensive side of the ball, being more diverse personnel-wise was kind of my favorite thing. And just like learning that from if I would like reverse engineer study what made Kyle's offense great, he was very diverse in the way he called a game and that his his game plan might have five different personnel groupings featured and pretty evenly distributed that maybe we might be, I don't know, 20, 30% in a few of them, but all of them would be more than 10 in a given game plan when the game's kind of going well and you can kind of stick to the script. Mm -hmm. That comes down to 
if at the end of the day, a defense is going to prepare for you by personnel, well, they don't have like more time to prepare for more personnel. So there's mm-hmm. going to be some sacrifice that goes into that game plan. And so you're just kind of like taking advantage of what you know that they have to do and then just not being afraid to be successful when you do that on game day. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And and yeah, well, we can we can dig into the, the personnel staff after this uh, this ad read <laughs> brought to you by by Circus Sports. So, you know, just just wanted to let everyone know that the, the biggest pro football contest in Las Vegas is back for its fifth year. Circa Million and Circus Survivor with 14 million in, in guaranteed prizes. So, you know, at, at Sumer, we we can't bet, but I think this is a really good opportunity for everyone out there to to do that. You can you can enter in Vegas while you're in Vegas at at the Circus Sportsbook, but then you can play from anywhere. So, if you go to circusports.com, you can get more details on this contest. I think it's something really cool. Um, when when Eric, uh, the the host of the show, on Mondays was at PFF. It was something that him and his PFF forecast co-host George Chahuri would always play in. So, you know, definitely something to check out. Um, just just select one team each week with no point spread, and uh, once once you're in Vegas, to sign up, and you should be set from there. So, yeah. So, John, let's let's get back to talking about um, you know kind of this this game planning uh, perspective on how how this can really help. Team. So yeah, the, the personnel diversity, I, I agree with you. And once you kind of showed me the data on that, it, it really opened my eyes on how teams can, can take advantage of that. Are there, are there specific teams this year that you are expecting to be more, let's say, like personnel diverse than, than the average NFL team? I mean, my, my former Atlanta Falcons definitely, I feel like, are making their own flavor of that. And especially with, as you talk about, they're like very chameleon-like personnel where what do you call Cordell Patterson or what are you Mm going to call Kyle Pitts that they'll do I'm sure they'll do things like well on defense is going to like tag this as 12 personnel but we're really running a play that's like traditional 11 personnel or just random things where at the end of the day when you're doing a a breakdown as a staff like you need to be correct about what the offense is doing or what the defense is doing well if you don't really truly know and the like coach Smith is responsible for like, well, Cordell's a receiver on this play or those types of things. It's going to be difficult. I think for teams to like really figure out what do we label these things? I know when we played the saints, it was always, what do you call Taysom Hill? Like he was mm-hmm. a second quarterback, but there were a lot of times where they just truly using him as a tight end. So do you label him just as a tight end when he's aligned at tight end? And just like having those questions, I think is an interesting way. And ultimately what that comes down to is the game plans dictated on the information that they know about the play is accurate and then they're going to act accordingly. Well, if it's not accurate, then the defense might make a mistake. And as I mentioned kind of a few minutes ago, that's the other way that you like do well on a play. Like an average play is going to work if the defense makes a mistake. So that was another thing that besides like personnel, like using things like motion or play action or really anything to manipulate a defense that maybe nine times out of 10, they'll stay true to their assignments. But that one time that they have a blown assignment, I mean, you're just kind of eating off of wide open territory on that play. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, like you mentioned, like motion is free play action gives you like a discount and, and puts you kind of ahead uh, on, on, yeah, it, like with an advantage there. So yeah, I definitely like, like using all that stuff. And yeah, I, I kind of put this out somewhat as a joke, but also somewhat seriously is like, I do want to see the Falcons just lean into like 31 personnel this year. Like you have, you have Kyle Pitts, Drake London as your tight end receiver. And then like you could throw out Bijan Robinson, who we know can catch 
Cordell Patterson, who we know can catch as well, and Tyler Algier, who's a, who's a pretty good running back in his own right, led the, led the NFL in, in EPA per rush. Uh, last year actually and, and it was okay in, in rushing yards over expected and so it, it'd be really cool to see like a defense try to handle uh, like all these different like pieces that the Falcons have no doubt and you I, you or Eric or somebody tweeted about it that a team like that or maybe it wasn't one of you but a team like that is very hard to prepare for game to game in the regular season because they're just different like it's not like something that you're used to preparing for but then Will they, if they have a successful season, like kind of how does that translate into the postseason? Maybe it was talking about the Ravens kind of offense, mm-hmm. or something like that, where it's just harder to evaluate them. Like it's very hard to stop on a game to game basis because that's not what you're used to preparing for. That leads to like what we were just talking about 31 personnel. Like a defensive coordinator is likely not going to have like, I'm always going to call cover three or I'm always going to call quarters, but they have kind of their go tos in those less often used personnel where against like 11 and 12 they'll be more dynamic of knowing I can get away with playing man coverage here. I can get away with a simulated pressure or a drop, whatever it is. Whereas the more niche personnel groupings in the league, like you can't be that dynamic against all of them where you're going to put your players in spots that they're just not like you're having a linebacker match in man coverage who never does that because that's just not his Mm -hmm. responsibility that doing weird personnel groupings like 31 one, you're putting a lot of great athletes on the field together, but two, like you just, what's the defense going to do? They're either potentially going to make a mistake or they're going to be very like vanilla in the the defense that they call against you. So that's a, a, an area to exploit, I would say probably. Mm -hmm. For sure. And yeah. And, and yeah, you touched on the Ravens a little bit. Like that's what I thought, like, obviously Lamar Jackson was, was amazing in 2019, but like also something that like they, they did that I thought was really special was you just had the Rams, with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Primarily play in 11 personnel in 2018, go to the Super Bowl, uh, you know, in large part because of it. And then like the league was starting to prepare for like this 11 personnel revolution because we know that it's somewhat of a copycat league. And the Ravens come out in 2019 and heavy 12 personnel, 13 personnel at times uh, with, with the three tight ends out there. And like while defenses were all ready to prepare for 11 personnel, it was just so much different to, to be diverse. And like when you look at like, people put out clustering graphs on scheme diversity, like the, the more diverse that these, these offenses are, like you'll, you'll see the chiefs and the Ravens and the bills, like teams that are perennially, and, and obviously the 49ers, like teams that are almost always at the top of offensive rankings are also going to be try, try to be more diverse. While like some of these like heavy 11 personnel teams that use an average rate of motion, an average rate of play action, just fall into the same bucket that make it really easy to prepare for. No doubt. And not only that, but literally like you don't want to like forget that the scouting side reacts to that Mm -hmm. too. So like every scouting staff's now built their defense, if you will, to be a nickel defense heavy of like when they're in 11 personnel, we have the best nickel that we can match with. Well, that's like an inefficiency that wasn't true five, 10 years ago. So maybe it was harder to run the ball. Right. Well, now when you do like kind of shift to a less traditional offense or today now a less traditional offense and you are 
in those run heavier personnel, not only are you literally facing lighter people because the 53 man roster is more constructed to be like a nickel down defense, if you will. But so that makes your runs more effective, but then you're in those like situations where then maybe they do try to match in like a very vanilla based defense and you exploit them with play action and things. So Mm -hmm. it's a zig to the zag that the personnel people are doing too, that ultimately if you know the design of the league's 53 man has shifted in one direction, play calling shifting the other way is going to exploit that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's like the thing that gave Bill Belichick, I think his edge in, in team building for so long was he, since like the league was trying to play catch up to like the Patriots specifically for the better part of a decade, he was always able to stay one step ahead of the curve when it came to shifting his defensive personnel, when it came to shifting his defensive formation um, based on where the league was going. And I think, yeah, I think it's really all about when you can do diversity, uniqueness, like all of those things together can really make for uh, these, these people that have to game plan, these coordinators, uh, really give them a difficult time, I think is like the main goal of, of all of that. No doubt. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so let's talk about, let's talk about some, some other stuff that I know that, that we talk about a lot. So in regards to uh, like the cap side of things, now that we have, we've talked about, talked about game planning um, and, and something that that's been brought up, but should be mentioned again is like the Browns are spending the most cash this year on their roster while everyone has to play under the, the rules of a cap because of things you can do with void years to certain contracts and, and restructures where you can just kind of keep rolling money back forever. It's, it's really the guaranteed money that gets, gets paid out plus whatever else you want on the cap. And then the rest of the stuff you can, you can pay out in cash and, and keep it. So that, that needs uh, buy-in from your ownership, but what are some other advantages or, or if you want to talk about that advantage more that you see teams doing from a cap perspective? I mean, it's void years is the trendy thing mm-hmm. that everyone's doing, like, because they can manipulate the cap part of it as long as the cash is there. I mean, that's, if you look at studies of like teams that are doing void years over the last, let's say six seasons or seven seasons, it's like seven seasons ago, it was like three teams. And mm-hmm. now it's like, two thirds of the league, if not more, I haven't looked at it recently are using void years in their contracts. And so that's, I'd say the trendiest thing. And then also I think getting smarter about certain, I mean, we see it with Saquon right now. He was talking about not wanting to play on the franchise tag versus wanting a long-term deal, getting smarter about utilizing like shorter deals that as long as kind of we have the cap there, you can utilize it or the cash there, you can utilize a shorter deal and then just like exploit the cap however you want to spread that out with void years or whatever it may be um, that you don't ultimately need to be signing kind of those like six and seven year deals at some positions because teams treat them as like three year deals. Anyway, you can kind of ostensibly have the same structure, but in a shorter actual deal. And that's more amenable to the player too, because he ends up getting slightly more of his actual money and it's not kind of fake money in years that they'll never achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think, yeah, like you, you really saw this being used a lot. Like, I think, I think the, the Eagles were, were one of those like three teams that you mentioned that were using this previously because of Howie Roseman's background and then, and then seeing like how, how that's kind of worked and then spread across the league has, has definitely really been interesting. And it like really has changed how free agency works now, how contract reporting works. Like now you, when, when a player signs, you can't take their initial contract that gets reported on face value, like the, the Geno Smith 
contract, for example, which was like reported as three years, 75 million, but like is actually like a one or two year deal when you when you dig into the contract, I think has has really changed the way that that everyone kind of uh, has to like care about contracts and, and the discourse about them now. No doubt. I mean, you guys have talked about this in the past, but I'd love to see something similar happen with the uh, the rookie wage scale or just mm-hmm. abolishing the draft or something, because that's where like you really at the end of the day, there's not much efficiency in the pro market. Right. Mm-hmm. The dollars are they spend themselves at the end of the day in a lot yeah. of these negotiations. So it's less exciting, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely agree with that. And like that's why I think, yeah, free agency is like a very efficient market at the end of the day like the the supply and the demand is there for for players and on the team side and players occasionally do take like a hometown discount or a, a special circumstance discount but like usually they'll take a fair value that's offered to them to to make sure that they get that and, and you know there are some uh drawbacks of like how running backs are being treated in the market or how certain value or certain positions might get valued eventually down the line that the NFL should should you know or, or might consider uh, fixing, but yeah, like the the draft at the end of the day is just something that a lot of teams are taking advantage of because most players that get drafted will end up outperforming their contracts. So if you go back to pre twenty eleven CBA, maybe you have something involved where their players negotiate their contracts after getting drafted, or you you have some type of other scale in place or, or some type of other system in place. But I think it'll be really interesting to see how they handle that, especially to, to help running backs, like we talked about earlier, like make sure that they're getting uh, enough wages while they're they're in the prime of their career, which is just happens to be the, the usually the first four years of their career. Yeah, the, the thing that I've always wondered, and I don't know that we've really ever talked about it internally, was the why there's just like no player options. Like mm-hmm. and other sports, player options are a thing. If you really took it like all the way, then make the four year draft contract just a player option every year. And if you want to opt out after your rookie year, okay, so be it. Like that's on you. And at that point, like, yes, that de incentivized the team from drafting you, but the market would balance itself out at the end of the day. Like it would find a happy medium there where the team knows, like, I need to automatically extend you then, like, renegotiate after year one. And that would require, I think, obviously a new CBA too, drawing up those rules. But the concept of a player option in general, like the negotiations have always been, in my eyes, very team friendly and team oriented in the NFL compared to other sports as it stands today. Um, It's the only sport where you don't get guaranteed contracts too. And I mean, making that a thing would also make teams make more like conservative decisions in what kind of length of deal they're going to offer and just change things. So definitely ways to improve it. But I, I think the league isn't necessarily interested in improving either of those things at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I do love the player option idea where players can kind of choose whether they want to stay on the contract that they're on and, and guarantee themselves like the, the rookie contract or opt out of it and make the team negotiate it if, they're, if their performance is, is uh, capable of it. And I really like that idea. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance, I guess, between the, the NFL trying to keep the owners and the, and the teams happy versus like the players making sure that they're they're getting their their fair wages and and everything as well, which which makes it really tough. But and like the the thing for me about the draft now is like I'm not like I'm not going to say it's solved because like the player valuation standpoint of it is still so tough and and so random and there's so much variance. But like the discourse around the draft now has like basically been solved to a point where it's just 
this team took premium positions and didn't reach on players according to the consensus big board. So we like their draft versus this team didn't take premium positions and didn't you know, re- maybe reach on some players. So we didn't like their draft. And like, that's what like the discourse has been. So now if you throw in that, that new alternative uh, rookie wage scale or, or rookie contract, that like kind of takes it from being somewhat figured out to the, all of us people like starting over on figuring out like what the optimal way is to, to handle those situations. No doubt. I mean, I'd love to see something change in that regard. Cause also you look at like undrafted free agency, mm-hmm. like the majority of the people that are getting signed one, they don't end up making the team, but like, you've never heard of a lot of them. Yeah. And so the narratives too there of like, if you shortened the draft and then like, Oh, well are the smart teams signing the guys that fell out of the first three rounds or whatever, if that's like all it was, then that is another like element of, well, there is real money to potentially be spent on the guy who didn't get drafted in the first three rounds, but I believe is a starter. I mean, the four, that's what I would personally love to see is like the fourth round is where teams still feel they're like potentially getting a starter in some situations. It's got to be the right kind of positional fit. Well, if that's true, like some of those rookies could end up making like a lot of money. And then even if running backs don't end up getting drafted because of some other ripple effect rule, well, then they're just negotiating like Saquon's negotiating his contract from day one at that point. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to give him over slot, if you will. You talk about like Major League Baseball slots and things like that to come sign for him. So yeah, I think something changing in regards to structure with that would be the only way that you really solve it for all positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. And I, I think, yeah, ho- hopefully that that's something down the line that, that changes. But for now, I, yeah, I think the teams will, the, the really smart teams will continue to use the draft to, to their advantage to make sure they're getting surplus value from their picks and then use free agency to, to because they understand it's an efficient market and, and kind of plug the holes like when, when necessary there as well. And, and that, but yeah, John, John, this was, this was great. Uh, you know, really, really enjoyed you coming on the show. Glad we got to do this. So for everyone out there listening, you can find John on Twitter at the real Papa John, <laughs> which is a, uh, which is a very, very funny username. My, um, and- my college job was at Papa John's. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was not a delivery driver. I made the pizza. And so I'm not even kidding. When I would walk in, sometimes my coworkers would literally say Papa's in the house. And it was like the most <laughs> cringy thing of all time. <laughs> That's where the Twitter, Twitter handle originated. It would be cool if you had the story like you you were the the guy that gave Urban Meyer the the Papa John's <laughs> pizza <laughs> when he was eating it after that the the playoff loss. I think that that, that iconic picture that was taken. Fortunately, no cool <laughs> but, stories like that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 a very cool username. I'm, I'm glad that that you uh you got it. And yeah, for for everyone out there, like he's he's currently the director of football strategy at, at True Media. So be sure to check out everything else that he's doing there as well as another podcast he did on, on True Media's Expected Value podcast. John, anything else that you want to, to plug before we log off here? No, I mean, so there will be a link to our company in my bio. And then I have that other interview pinned to the top of my timeline. If anybody's interested in checking it out, we go into a little bit more detail in that on like my specific academic career that if there's any kind of like and more entry level people that are interested in like the steps to get to sitting in a seat like Tej has right now. Um, it probably would apply a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. People should definitely check that out. And yeah, Mojo has a question for her, for you here in the chat. What's your, your best Papa John's uh, pizza? Oh, that's a tough one. So by far their chicken strips was my favorite thing, which mm-hmm. they got rid of and was like, like 
it broke my heart. I love their pepperoncini peppers. That was like the one like unique thing that they did. I would always make a white pizza. So I like that. And then just with sausage and six cheese would be like the two things <laughs> I would throw on it. So, I like that. Kind of yeah. That, that sounds good. I mean, yeah, it is. It is getting close to dinner time here. hungry, but <laughs> so, yes, yeah, but, um, but yeah, for everyone listening out there as well, like be sure to check out our Twitter uh, at Sumer sports, the, the website, sumersports.com got some pretty cool stuff that is about to go up pretty soon. And, and yeah, keep listening to the, the super sports show on YouTube, on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you want to listen to it. And if you're enjoying it, feel free to, to give us a review and let it like, let us know, like DM me or, or respond to me on Twitter. Like if you want us to, to stream some live best ball drafts, it's something we've, we've talked about, but didn't know if there was going to be interest out there. So Eric Parker and I can definitely do that. So feel free to let us know as well, but thanks everyone for listening. Really appreciate all the, the comments as always. And until next time on the Sumer sports show. Thanks Dave. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.